For those of us who follow Jesus, we have a book. It isn't a theology book. It isn't a rule book. This book is a story. A story of God and humanity. A story Jesus said he was fulfilling. This book contains poems, riddles, letters, puzzling narratives, and new ideas. Yet, throughout it all, this book is full of the breath of God. For those of us who follow Jesus, this book is a treasure. This book is a tree of life. This book is a page turner. Turn the page with us. The Bible is not a flat text where every passage of scripture carries the same amount of weight. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time. Jesus says to the crowds, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, where had Jesus' audience heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Well, in, in the Bible, of course, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus dares to challenge the scriptures on his own authority, which is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they, the, the author here records the crowd's reaction. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them, you see, on his own authority, not like their scribes used to do. Can you imagine a preacher and a, a pastor here in our city saying something like, the Bible says, but I say to you, well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Those listening to Jesus were forced to make a monumental decision. Does Jesus have the authority to challenge Scripture? This is why in his book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, Jacob Neusner is uncomfortable with and ultimately rejects the Sermon on the Mount. He says, only God can demand what Jesus is asking. Precisely. Rabbi Neusner clearly understands what's at stake here. Jesus is not just an expositor of the scriptures. No, he's the word of God in person. The answer to the question is central to what makes a Christian a Christian. Is Jesus merely a commentator on scripture, or is he the word of God itself? Jesus is giving his words more authority than the words of Moses. And this is not the only time that we see Jesus do this in the Gospels. I said this in week one. We don't follow the Bible. We follow Jesus. And I believe that this is what the Bible leads us towards. This is what the Bible teaches. When Christians follow the Bible over following Jesus, or when Christians place the Bible on equal level of Jesus, we can say and do terrible things in the name of Jesus. And as a pastor for over 20 years, I have often had very good conversations with people who don't believe in God. Uh, I, I venture to say that most of them don't believe in God because of what they have seen, heard, and read about Christians doing over the last 2,000 years. They would say that Christianity is the cause of countless suffering, slavery, torture, and death throughout its history, just like every other religion. So let's get rid of religion altogether. And sometimes as Christians, we try to defend the past that bears our name. 
And I just want to say from the get-go that if you have seen or experienced Christians acting less than Christ-like, it is okay not to defend their behavior. Okay? You're not betraying your team. The, the hard truth is, is that Christianity doesn't have the greatest history. Now, it is Halloween season. You may see some pumpkins or some skeletons on people's front porches. Uh, so uh, for today, let's take a little tour of Christianity's House of Horrors, okay? We're going to look at church history over the past 2,000 years and see what happens when we, use, when we use the Bible instead of follow Jesus. Okay, the first thing is the Crusades. In 1095, the Pope, the, the leader of the Catholic Church, called for the Knights of Europe to unite and march to Jerusalem to save the Holy Land from the rule of Islamic infidels. In just decades earlier, Pope Gregory VII had declared, Cursed be the man who holds back his sword from shedding blood. And now his wishes were coming to pass. The Crusaders rode into battle with the cry of, Du Volt, which means, God wills it. Raymond of Agiles accompanied the Crusaders on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to slaughter the Muslim people, as a representative of the church, of the very first crusade. And he actually documented the words, uh, documented some things about what he saw in Jerusalem. He wrote this, Wonderful things were to be seen. Numbers of Saracens, Muslims, were beheaded. Others were shot with arrows or forced to jump from the towers. Others were tortured for several days, then burned with flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet were to be seen in the streets of the city. It was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses. But these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon. What happened there? If I tell the truth, it will exceed your powers of belief. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the Temple and Portico of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and the bridle reins. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers when it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. Men, women, children, Muslim and Jewish, all slaughtered in the name of Jesus. The synagogue in which the city's Jews were sheltering was set on fire to burn them alive. And at the end of the day's brutalities, crusaders gathered for a worship service in Jerusalem. In our history, we didn't just kill people of other religions. We also killed people within our own religion as well. Uh, the Inquisition. The, monast the monastic Inquisition in 1231 established that, that, that priests and people of the Dominican order could root out heresy. And so they would, the, the church sanctioned the use of torture and execution to root out heretics in the church. And the result was one of the most horrific realities our planet has ever seen. System, systematized torture in the name of Jesus. With license from the Pope himself, representatives of Christ were to go throughout the earth to explore the depths of cruelty and terror, all to root out heresy. This wasn't just for a brief moment of time. Church-sponsored terror lasted for centuries. The last person 
which was actually a school teacher charged with heresy, was executed by strangulation in 1824. Sometimes uh, Protestants or non-Catholics would emphasize the misdeeds of the Catholic Church, but in this case, when it came to killing heretics, Protestants were just as bad. Respected reformers like John Calvin approved of multiple executions in the name of Jesus. So in our history, we kill people of other religions, we kill people of our religion, and we kill people that we suspected were a part of another religion. The witch hunts. Catholics and Protestants both sought the death of suspected witches. Anyone who appeared to draw power through herbs or healed in unconventional ways or just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time could be accused of being a witch. And taking the Old Testament law as their guide, Christians believed that, the death, that death was the only option for those who practiced sorcery. See Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. And so once arrested, people accused of witchcraft were rarely given any other sentence other than death. Although men were sometimes charged with witchcraft, women bore the brunt of it. Suspected witches could be held accountable for virtually every problem, whether personal misfortune, bad harvest, famine, plague. Now, historians aren't quite sure on the exact number of witches or supposed witches that were executed during this season. Most guesses fall anywhere between 60,000 and 200,000. They were tortured and killed during the burning times. And there are Christians who argue strongly for the lesser number, as though there is some great purpose in exposing the exaggerations of secular people regarding the failures of the church. But they're missing the point, right? Because 60,000 people murdered in the name of Jesus is 60,000 too many. They're focused on the wrong argument. The real problem Christians need to face is not the exaggerated criticism of secular people, but the mind-blowing extent to which the church has so often failed at following Jesus. Here lies the danger of the Bible. You can make it say whatever you want. You want a God where it doesn't matter how you live and anything goes? You can find Bible passages to defend that. You want a mean and angry God who hates the same people that you hate? You can find some passages of Scripture to defend that in the Bible. Consider these chilling words by Adolf Hitler. My feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion I recognize more profoundly than ever, the fact that it was for this and that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. So if Hitler wants to exterminate Jews, he can concoct a way to make the Bible seem to support his diabolical intentions. This is the problem when we, when we untether the Bible from the revelation that we are given in Jesus. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. And that's why when God wanted to speak definitively to the human race, 
He did not dictate a book. Instead, he sent Jesus. And Jesus didn't write a book. He preached, ministered, suffered, died, and rose from the grave. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The, I mean, the upastasis, the exact representation, the, the perfect being of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Talking and acting as if the Bible is God's only and highest version of self-revelation is completely unbiblical. God's truest, highest, most important, most authoritative, most compelling self-revelation is in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, not the Bible, that is the image of the invisible God. It was in Christ that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell, not the Bible. C.S. Lewis wrote, It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. This misunderstanding has allowed the church to justify all kinds of terrible things that are actually anti-Christ. Philosopher Roy Clauser speaks for many of us when he says, The history of religious institutions has been such an abysmal panorama of bigotry, persecution, and cruelty that I can see why it could lead someone to wish to be rid of the whole business. In light of all this, one could say, the teachings of Jesus must be false because the fruit of his religion has been hatred and violence, just like all other religions. I would agree with G.K. Chesterton, who said, the way of Jesus has not been tried and found unfruitful. It has been found difficult and left untried. It is so much more difficult to love our enemies than to hate them and kill them. It is so much more difficult to, to thrive in a power under rather than long for a power over people. When Christians were committing these horrible acts of terror and violence, they were not following the ways of Jesus who taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. When the church went wrong, they were following the Bible, but they weren't following Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we read and study the Bible, he leads us towards the most loving, the most other-centered choice. We get people who come to us all the time and ask, what should I do? What, what should I do? How should we handle this? And even as, as a staff, we, we gather together and we wrestle through what we should be doing, what we could be doing better, what this situation demands. And we always come back to the same question. What is the most loving answer because it's probably the right answer I think that the Bible leads us to this conclusion of focusing in on Jesus following him check out these verses Jesus says this in John 5 you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life it is those very scriptures that testify about me you study the Bible you read every passage in scripture and you think that the words of life are there but you don't realize it's all pointing to me. John chapter 1, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God 
and in, is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So what is the answer? We love this book, right? We love the Bible. There's truth in this book. How are we to know if we're following it or if we're following him? How do we discern the Bible? How do we know what we should apply or what was meant for back then and what is also meant for now? This is a colander. A colander is a strainer used to wash vegetables so that you can rinse off dirt and other undesirable things, leaving just the nutrients, just the food. Jesus is our colander. When reading scripture, we should question passages that are inconsistent with the teachings, life, example, and character of Jesus. If we don't see it in Jesus, we let it rinse off and keep the nutrients, holding to the important things, while the less desirable things are rinsed away. Anything that is inconsistent with the commands of Jesus, and what Jesus, how Jesus summarized the law and the prophets, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest command. The second is like it. It's, it's one B. There's one A, there's one B. One B is love your neighbor as yourself. These are, this is the message of Jesus. This is how we are to bring the kingdom of God. If it doesn't line up with Jesus and his core message, life, example, character, heart, passion, love, it should be open to question. When reading the Bible, we ask the question, what is the heart, character, and will of God that Jesus reveals? So let's, let's do an example. Let's, let's try this together. Let's get really practical, okay? Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9, it says this. When the daughter of a priest profanes herself through prostitution, she profanes her father. She shall be burned to death. Okay? Is this teaching us how we should view and treat women who have sex for money? or women who have been forced into this industry. Well, how does Jesus treat prostitutes? How does this line up with the teachings of Jesus? Well, Jesus befriends prostitutes. Jesus shows them mercy. Jesus shows them compassion. Jesus removes their accusers one by one. This is very different than the Levitical law. And there, so there are two very different pictures of God on how we should treat a prostitute. When we see this kind of disparity between Jesus and something else in the scripture, we choose Jesus. And the Bible leads us to this. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, might look good on a bumper sticker, but the Bible is messier than that, and the Bible is better than that. It doesn't point you to a rule to believe, it points you to a person to love and to follow, and his name is Jesus. That's why we should read it. That's why we should read the good book. You have to know the heart of Christ to choose him as your lens for interpreting the Bible. When we read and study the Bible with our hearts intent on following Jesus better, we do become more Christ-like. But it's hard to be Christ-like if you don't know what Christ was like. And so it's important to read and study the Bible. It's important to uh, wrestle with it in community. It's important to spend our Sunday mornings becoming more Christ-like, studying the Bible together. Do we spend time with him? Do we study his words? Because information by itself is just dead, right? Uh, sometimes we swing the other way and we say, well, I don't need to study or learn. I have an intimate relationship with God, books, Bible study, they're just unhelpful. But every good relationship is a combination of intimacy and information. Okay, it's true. Picture yourself going on a first date. You're hanging out over dinner one night, 
and you just grill them with questions, okay? Just getting information. I just want to know stuff about you and you study them, okay? You're taking notes. That's a bad first date, okay? You're probably not going to get a second date. Not much of a relationship there. She says something like, hey, do you want to go out and do something? And you're like, no, no, no. I just want to learn. And they start taking notes about you. But you know what? Replacing that with the other extreme, just watch how the pendulum swings. It's not going to lead you to a healthy relationship either, right? You sit down together and she says, tell me about yourself. You know what? I think information is overrated. Like, I just really want to be intimate right now. Let's make out. Oh, well, I'd love for you to get to know me a little bit. Can you tell me more about the Less talking, let's be close. See, you're also not going to get a second date. True intimacy cares about all aspects of the person, including their history, their opinions, their thoughts. So our, our, our intimacy, our relationship with Jesus, isn't only about study, uh, but it must include study. It does include knowledge. If he is king, our schedules, priorities, and lives should reflect that kingship. And so we're encouraging us to read the Bible, to read and study the Bible, to, grip, to, to better love and follow Jesus. We want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Bible, I'm really convinced that studying that book, this great book, helps us become more Christ-like. Not just by yourself but it's meant to be interpreted and wrestled with in community. Israel, right? We are Israel, the people who wrestle with God. If we see something in the Bible that doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus, we choose Jesus. And here is our theme statement throughout this six-week series. We believe in the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God, and his name is Jesus. We read and study the Bible in order to better follow and love Jesus. I'll close with this. There's a young Chinese boy who wanted to learn about jade, that beautiful stone. And so he went to study with an old, wise, and talented teacher. And this gentleman put a piece of stone into the youth's hands and told him to hold it tight. Then he began to teach on philosophy, men, women, the sun, and everything underneath it. After an hour, he took back the stone and sent the boy home. This procedure was repeated for weeks. He was given a stone, asked to cling to it tightly, and then taught about everything under the sun. The boy became frustrated. When would he be taught about Jade? But he was too, too polite to interrupt his wise teacher. And then one day, the wise teacher put a stone into his hand, and the boy collapsed it and said, that's not Jade. Knowing Jesus and studying the Bible helps us know the difference between what is real and what is fake, what is true and what is false, what is lasting and what is fading, and what is selfish and what is Christ-like. This is the purpose of studying the Bible. Not so that you can have an answer to every question. Not so you can win a debate. But so that your life could reflect Jesus to the world. The Bible is not, never has been, and never will be the center of the Christian faith. The Bible is the church's non-negotiable partner. But it's not God's final word. Jesus is. The Bible doesn't say, look at me. The Bible declares, look at him. 
May your life reflect him. The Bible is a hymn book. It points to him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word revealed on Calvary's cross. Thank you for the example we have in you. And so God, may we not get lost in the forest of scripture, but would you help us see the forest through the trees? That we would be able to, to not read the Bible always literally, but we would read the Bible Jesusly through the lens of Christ. May he be our colander. So Jesus, help us in this, God. Help us to see you on every page and for our lives to reflect your compassion, your mercy, your great love. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno for our Binge Reading the Bible sermon series. Uh, we hope that you're tracking with us uh, through the Bible reading plan that we have on the Prodigal app. It's 30 days, two or three chapters a day, taking us through the grand narratives of Scripture so that we can become more Christ-like and see Jesus on every page. We hope you have an amazing week, and we look forward to next week. God bless you.